Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone. So I have real life, Zoom life, real life, <laughs> Zoom life. I'm not sure who to look at. <laughs> I want to start by just um, thanking everyone for not only for being here, but for um, your patience and practice with a different kind of intensive where we have such a mixture of medium and technology. Um, I know it's we've had some hiccups and challenges and just getting everything to work right. And I appreciate Joel and I appreciate your patience. It seems to seems to work well enough that we get to see each other and practice together may not be ideal, but this is our practice to practice with the causes and conditions, and the life that we actually have, not the dream of the mountain monastery. Maybe we want So thank you. So I want to pick up with um, continuing our training in compassion, the Lojan phrases that Joel started us off, when, off on yesterday. And I'll start with uh, one of my favorite quotes from Joko, which I, you know, I did not ever meet her or know her, but uh, <clears throat> To me, it's, you know, it's what I imagined she was like, in a pithy little short sentence. And her, her quote is, we get good at what we practice. Just that simple. We get good at what we practice. And so the next thing I'll warn you of is be very careful what you're practicing every day. Because <laughs> that's what you're going to get good at. So in this intensive, right, we're talking about the Lojong phrases and training in compassion. Right, we're going to try and get good at compassion. Well, let's start with what empathy and compassion actually mean. So empathy is the ability to feel another's feelings, right, to pick up on that emotional resonance where you can feel the sadness of another, you can feel the joy of another. You have um, the ability to feel another's feelings. That's empathy. That's kind of like the base, right? Tuning into others. What it's not, it doesn't mean you care. Right? It's just a skill of reading someone. It's a skill, it's a communicative skill of communication. Uh, as Norman Fisher points out, uh, con artists and psychopaths are very good at the skill. Right? A con artist is very good at picking up on someone's thoughts, fears, emotions, and using them to their advantage. So ability is just that ability to feel another's feelings. That's not what we're after, but it's a foundation. Sympathy 
is empathy plus caring. Not only do you feel what the other feels, but you care about it. You wish them well. You want them to feel joy. You don't want them to feel anger, right? Things that detract from their life. And then finally, compassion is the specific case of having sympathy for someone's suffering, for someone else's suffering. We can feel their suffering. We care, we sympathize with it. And compassion is to be able to do that with someone else's suffering. To not turn away, to not run away and hide. And yesterday, Joel sent us on our way to work with slogan 44, to train in the three difficulties to keep us engaged, working on our various default habits. Those default, unsuccessful thoughts, attitudes, actions that keep coming back based on our own personal background, conditioning, family of origin. And as a reminder, the first difficulty is when the habitual impulse first appears in your mind. The difficulty is in noticing it, noticing that impulse. The second difficulty is that once it appears, it's compelling and difficult to let go of. And the third is that even if you get past the second and can let go of it, it comes back. And it's hard not to be compelled by it over and over again when it pops up the next time. So the Lojong phrases, this practice of training in compassion. Why would we do that? It's because that um, as Buddhists, we recognize that Transformation is possible. It's a fundamental thing. Everything changes. And if everything changes, then transformation is possible. We're not stuck in our current way. We can train ourselves. Most of us think our minds are fixed by our genetics, our family of origin, our life experience, and we assume our basic reactions and feelings are fixed. We are who we are, right? That's kind of the common understanding. Ah, that's just him. That's just me. But it turns out, you know, we can use that as an excuse. As Joko said, we get good at what we practice. It turns out our minds, our brains are plastic. Our minds, our character, our patterns of thought and emotion are fluid. Renewed through our daily activity and reflections. They're plastic, meaning it's moldable, it's shapeable. I love the neurobiologist's metaphor 
that we were talking about yesterday. That, you know, the mind is kind of like a, a nice clay little slope that we can run water down, right? Run our thoughts, the stream of consciousness down. And the first time that particular water flows over it, there's a little more variability as to which direction it can go. But as it moves, as it decides to go through judgment, compassion, joy, anger, it carves a little channel that wasn't there before. And guess what? The next raindrop, the next bit of water to hit the slope is more likely to follow the path before. This is our neuroplasticity. This is our mind training, whether we know we're doing it or not. And Clayton reminded me of uh, Dan Siegel's great little quote in his books. What was it about the neurons? That fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Meaning that when you exercise that neural pathway, be it happiness or be it judgment, you create lasting connections. They wire together. You're more likely to do it the same way next time. Habitual response. We get good at what we practice. Training is a repetition. It's just like developing a physical strength in the body. We have to do the reps. Just like in exercises, physical exercise, there are devices and techniques to train the mind. These are the Lojong phrases. Except in our case, and not like an exercise, it's not stationary bicycles, treadmills, weight machines. In this case, it's meditation, form and ritual, prayer, study, depending on your tradition. So these have been handed down to us as a way to help develop our compassion muscle to develop a natural compassionate response. One thing I like to tell people is when they're studying and practicing this path and they have questions about their orientation or their direction, I say, well, just look at the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes. These are the the abodes of the divine, the states that exist as a fruit of the practice. And they are loving kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, sympathetic joy or feeling that joy that others feel, feeling it and enjoying that joy in others, or mudita and equanimity, Rupeka. If you notice any of these four fruits arising, then it's a good indication that you're on the right path. Another quote from Joko, 
We can't use our little mind to correct the little mind. It's a formidable problem. The very thing we're investigating is also our means or tool for investigating it. The distortion in how we think distorts our effort to correct the distortion. How does a rebel examine rebelliousness? <clears throat> so we're given these um, techniques and traditions that have been handed down through millennia as a way to train, as a way to take our opinions and little mind out of it and give us something to do, something that's known to produce the four Brahma Viharas, especially compassion. And we start by training in the preliminaries, by stopping feeling sorry for ourselves, by trying to stop blaming others for um, the current life situation, even if it's true. <laughs> even if it's true that they're to blame, we stop blaming others. Neurons that fire together wire together. You get good at what you practice. Practice blaming mind, and you will get blaming mind. Practice sympathetic joy, and you'll feel sympathetic joy. So how? How do we go about this? We've been given a whole book of small slogans that can be used you know, in order or skipping around over time. And we work with them initially on the cushion, sitting calmly with breath and body awareness, simply repeating the slogan silently to yourself again and again. That's not to say to sit and think about it. That's different. The instruction is to silently repeat the slogan to yourself. and sit with it, not to think about it. Just let it work on you. Notice the feeling in your belly and your heart. After some initial time with this, you can expand the practice to think about it off the cushion, to reflect about it off the cushion, perhaps journaling about the slogan talking about it with spiritual friends. Write it down. Perhaps make your own translation. Or just repeat it when walking or driving. And in those moments when you've forgotten, resist the urge to punish yourself with judgment. When you punish yourself with judgment and judging thoughts, you're training judging mind. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Be very careful what you practice. We don't need to go in order. You can find one that seems alive for you, relevant to your current life situation, or one that just calls to you. And we begin to train. 
Our approach is not to avoid the unpleasant. Not our typical response to suffering, to turn away, to feel we aren't ready, that we can't witness it. Compassion is the ability to have empathy for someone suffering, to have sympathy for it, to wish them well, and to not turn away, especially in the case of our own. Deny, escape, getting rid of, avoiding, these are our usual ways. The slogans take the opposite approach. By saying them over and over again, they turn us toward them rather than away. We began to turn toward difficulty, understanding it as our teacher. It turns difficulty into benefit. Difficulties can be, as Norman says, quote, wedges to pry open our smallness. Difficulties can be wedges to pry open our smallness. Changing the habit of avoiding difficulty to the habit of engaging it creatively, creatively, excuse me, may be the single most important factor for training the mind. That's from Norman in the intro. Changing the habit of avoiding difficulty to the habit of engaging it creatively may be the single most important factor for training the mind. It reminds me of a Eastern teacher's description of practice in Zazen as taking the one seat. You take the one seat in the center of the room, you open the front door and the back door, and you see who comes in. You see what arises, never turning away. All are welcome. And in this way, compassion turns the difficulties into opportunities. The wedge to pry open our smallness. Compassion is not a rarefied human quality. It can be cultivated. It can become the way we live our daily lives. We can train. These things you see as your difficulties are your teachers. Sometimes it's just a matter of knowing what to do with them. The quote I read this morning from uh, Paul Holler, Ryushin Paul Holler. I love that one. It's so succinct and full of layers of meaning. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. Right? The, the old medieval, I guess it would be, practice of alchemy, you know, black magic, changing dross into gold, taking something common and worthless and making it into something extremely valuable. But alchemy implies a kind of black magic, a kind of not knowing mystery, 
don't know how it happens. Hmm. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. The crucible being the container and the vessel that can withstand the heat, the forge of the fire, the fire and the forge. Awareness is that crucible. Your awareness, when you can muster it, is the crucible that transforms the ordinary into the gold. As Joel was taking us through yesterday, talking about the impulse and the habituated reaction and trying to pause and interject a pause and stop becoming aware of that impulse. That's the crucible where the alchemy happens, where the magic happens. And what I always think is magic, I like to say if there's anything, anything magical about this practice, it actually creates things that didn't exist before and makes them exist. A choice. If you have an impulse and you have a habitual reaction, you have no choice. If you have an impulse and have awareness of the impulse before the reaction happens, you've magically created a choice that did not literally exist before. You have the opportunity to choose. Awareness is the crucible where the alchemy happens. Suzuki Roshi said, for Zen students, a weed is a treasure. The thing that's growing in your garden that you don't want is a treasure. In Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he talks about these mind weeds. When you get up early in the morning, I think you don't feel so well. I'm quoting from the book, you probably recognize it. It is not so easy to come and sit. Even after you started sitting, you have to encourage yourself to sit well. Those are just the waves of our mind. Just waves. And in pure zazen, there should not be any waves in our mind. But while you're sitting, those waves will more and more become smaller and your effort will change into some subtle feeling. We say, pulling out the weeds, we make nourishment of the plant. We pull the weed and bury the weed near the plant to make it nourishment of the plant. So even though you have some difficulty in your practice, even though you have some waves while you're sitting, those weeds will help you. So we should not be bothered by the weeds we have in our mind. We should be grateful to the weeds you have in your mind because eventually they will enrich your practice. We take these difficulties. We don't turn away from them. We sit them right there next to us on our lap, close to our hearts, or we bury them at the root of the plant and let them turn into nourishment. This is how we train. So just remember what Joko says. We get good at what we practice. Please be aware. 
please be careful. Thank you very much. I think we have some, we're supposed to end at 10, what? About 20 minutes. 20 minutes, so we have plenty of time for questions or reflections or anything that is coming up for you. Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a question I've had a couple of times about the Brahma Baharas. Um, sympathetic joy that doesn't make sense you don't want them to stop having joy why isn't it empathetic joy because i've heard it both ways yeah um, it's just feeling and delighting in the joy of others mm -hmm. maybe we're using the wrong words i don't know i've seen it sympathy and empathy I both, too. so Hey, the linguist were here, she would answer. <laughs> well, according to what you said, empathy is an awareness of other people's feelings, so, just like a psychopath can be keenly aware of how someone else is feeling, but the sympathy is when the heart and caring comes in. Right. Therefore, sympathetic joy is very different from sympathetic joy. All right, that's good, good, thank you. Okay. Yeah, so feeling someone else's joy and wanting it for them and then rejoicing in it. With heart. With heart, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you, that's very helpful. I used that one. My mother's name is on the altar right now. I'm staring at it. And every time I come to do vows, I see it. My mother died four weeks ago. And, uh, excuse me for a moment. But at her funeral, uh, one of the things I spoke about, she was not a Buddhist practitioner at all, but she had an amazing quality for sympathetic joy. She really loved the joy in others, and she brought it out. So it's a wonderful gift. Excuse me. Uh, I'm sorry, Cam, I interrupted you. Oh, I never started. Yes. <laughs> Great hearing about your mother. Yes, thank you. Uh, I have two questions. One is uh, a continuing question from um, Peg chastising me and uh, probably others for a self-improvement program. Yeah. And how that is different than training. And I think, I think John hit a little bit on it with the no self thing, that there's no one to train or improve, but the other question is, I mean, that's going to be a koan, I guess I continue, I'll continue to work on. The other question is, is the kind of intersection of compassion and helping. You know, it, it seems uh, just really important not just to stop there with the feeling, but when you can do something. And it's, it's, it's also a personal kind of uh, hang up, maybe, mm -hmm. you know, of wanting to go farther than just the feeling. Yeah, the first couple of chapters about the difference between um, absolute and the relative compassion, I believe it was. 
the absolute being kind of the formless emptiness, it's always there, and goodwill. And the relative is, you know, someone's gotta, someone's gotta make the soup for the soup kitchen, and someone has to do something. And that there are two sides of the same coin. I'm not doing it justice, but he does spend a half a chapter on that, and I think it's insightful that they do, there, there are two ways of looking at the same thing, and that they're bound up together. But one without the other will either leave you burned out or not actually helping anyone. I saw Lynn had her hand up. Thank you, Todd. Um, you know, I've been thinking about you throughout this whole, um, whole retreat. Um, and how you're doing uh, with your with the loss that you have, uh, and um, so uh, and, and and I'm sure we all are. Um, and I that was such a powerful talk you just gave. Uh, that was an amazing talk, and and I kept thinking, how can you do this? But it's just it was it was really good. I I took copious notes, uh, and I probably will hear it again. Uh, but the, the one thing that, that just amazed me that you said was, uh, and I think it was was a, a Todd thing and not a quote from those wonderful quotes you gave us. This was a Todd thing. You said, if there is any magic in this practice, it's, it's that something, I didn't get the whole quote, but something happens that didn't exist before. Choice. Uh, that choice that did not exist before. And I just, I just thought that was so powerful. And I, I thank you deeply. You're welcome. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a Todd thing, but you know, you can't, you can't really read so much, you never know where they come from. So I'm sure it's stolen from somewhere, but yeah. Awareness, if there's any magic, it comes strengthening the awareness muscle and being able to interrupt the impulse and habitual response magically creates choices that didn't exist before. Opportunities to choose that didn't, didn't exist before. Yeah. So I was struck by the tenacity and the strength of um, unconscious urges and wondering where do you think what do you think the root of that tenacity and strength is why are they so hard to get rid of i don't know you know i don't have i don't have a uh, a right answer but what came up for me just when you said that was life force it's the same life force that wills you to find food, to survive, to procreate, to live, right? It's like that's that's the same under uh, to me, the same underlying force that's that's telling you to to run away, you know, to go forward, you know, to do this. It's just and it over our background causes and conditions and habitual response, that force gets molded by firing together and wiring together into certain habitual patterns. 
think it's just that's just me. I have no idea if that's any, if that's true or not. But it seems like the right answer. It seems like it's just the drive of life. Mm -hmm. Yes, Bridget. Todd, I'm, I'm curious if you or maybe others in our group could give examples in their own life where that that awareness has resulted in in an alchemy. Oh, I would love to hear from others if anyone has examples. She was asking, does anyone can anyone think of examples where the the new awareness has resulted in that alchemy where there was the possibility of a different outcome? Uh, I see Rosemary has her hand up. Sorry, then we'll come to Kai. So um, I was, um, thanks anyway, Todd. I was um, sitting this morning and um, I need to keep with me. Most of you know that, that I have semi-retired from my private practice. And so this is the third, I've completed three weeks and um, I need to keep that close to me because it's a it is a big deal as much as I like to be oh you know I can handle it. So this morning I was missing my patients the, that um, I said goodbye to and um, as I was sitting. Um, I was realizing that. Um, there isn't really loss it's just a change. It's just a change in our relationship. And that was, so that was kind of, that felt more like a choice to see, you know, everything. I mean, these are folks that I've worked with for at least four to 10 years. So that's, you know, um, all of that work together, um, flowing through me to them, my own therapy, all just moving. That that just, not only do we have a, um, a new relationship, a different, a changed relationship, but um, everything that happens um, um, spreads out into their lives and my life too. So that was a different way of, of um, facing my missing. And, um, you know, so anyway, that was, that was me today. Thank you. Kai? Um, I Thank you for asking that question. I, I've been thinking about, um, we have a, a new dog in our house and um, for the last like three months and she's just this ball of year and a half energy and she's, um, we love her and she also brings this chaos. And I think my reactions to that chaos are sometimes like, and she has a lot of anxiety, which is interesting because it mm. kind of, we, we also have mirrors on our own anxiety by watching her anxiety. Um, and I think part of one sort of clear moment was in going to the park and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good for you. You're going to love it. You're going to be here with all the dogs you want to play with and it's going to be great. And then there's this boom sound and she gets real scared. Mm. And I'm just, and my impulse is like, oh my gosh can you just push through it or like you know just sort of like this like thing where it's like what's going on and i just realized in that moment or it's just sort of a frustration that like now you're gonna have energy all day this is why we can't have nice things right <laughs> and i just was like oh oh hold on wait there's a space there i don't have to 
be frustrated at her or myself or my partner for you know having a moment of anxiety and I can't deal like it's okay if this is not the moment this is not the moment and we'll just follow from there but just like that moment of compassion versus frustration just felt like a choice in a way that almost felt generational because I realized mm -hmm. too that there were these pieces that end up like the kid not performing to the parents expectations and then like gosh you're embarrassing the whole family or something like that so it's just sort of like this very interesting cascading of like okay mm -hmm. I can't put my finger on all of those pieces but I feel like I'm touching something different and that's really Mm -hmm. Thank you. Monica? Um, yeah, so uh, gigantic um, part of my life uh, of an awareness that led to alchemy. As most of y'all know, I'm very open about being 10 years sober. So talk about having an awareness that leads to something very, very different with choices like by second almost. Um, to me, that's a big example of some magic that happens with awareness. Mm. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I really noticed that space and then making a choice and how those ripples go out from that, um, from that action and change what I thought was going to happen. That's one of the things about no choice for me is that I assume I know exactly what's going to happen. And so I don't have any real choice about that. But if I'm, if I can pause and make this choice that mind training suggests and really think about training my mind to stop and think about what would be the most helpful in this situation. I do that with my mom. When I'm having dinner with her, she has dementia. And um, she'll ask me the same thing over and over again, or she'll say something that's like, where did that come from? Why did you say that? Um, and if I can, you know, feel I'm really irritated and stop before I try to respond in some glib or sarcastic way, which is what I've been taught to do, um, then the situation goes another way. It doesn't get great. It's not beautiful, but it doesn't go the way that it's gone many times before. And that, and I don't feel that way. I don't feel that, um, Oh, I've done something terrible to my mother. I'm really guilty. I'm kind of feeling. So that makes a difference for me. That's an example. Stephanie? And by the way, I, we can't see everyone on the Zoom screen. So if someone has their hand up, just let us know. Go ahead, Stephanie. Um, back in 2015, I was doing a short Camino uh, with a group with Paula Darcy. So it was all Christians, and I was the only non-Christian in the group. And when we all the was probably the most, um, I don't want to say fanatical, but she was a very strong Christian. And so there was a lot of 
you know, talk whenever we were together in the room, you know, she would talk about her faith. And, and I was um, trying really hard not to be judgmental and critical, but it wasn't working. <laughs> and um, something happened, we were in short, and something happened um, that kind of messed things up for the group. And we were in the room together and she said, well, that's not helpful. Whatever reason, I mean, I'd only been practicing about three years by then, seriously practicing it. For whatever reason, that caused me to hear something I hadn't heard before. Because it wasn't this um, recognition of this is bad, this is good. It was a very simple statement about something was helpful or it wasn't helpful. Mm -hmm. That just blew me away. And so it's been eight years now, and I use that almost on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, it has just really changed the way I see a lot of things, whether something is helpful or not helpful, instead of it's that's good, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Is it someone? No, go ahead. So, I'm, I'm identifying with what you said and what everybody's saying. Um, and I just want to throw it out there because awareness in and of itself to me doesn't imply experiencing. Mm -hmm. And that's a real important piece, you know. What's the distinction? Joko talks about it all the time. You know. Can you just uh, explain what your the so, distinction you're making between the two? So, like I'm, because I was thinking about what you were saying, and that was very impactful. You know, I can see how it was for you. So, but if I go to, you know, like my daily practices all the time, you know, making a choice to not suffer. But I can't do it just by choosing, okay, I don't want to suffer. You know, I want to make the choices that are going to help me move forward with my grief, you know. Mm. I have to stop and feel what is there. I have to experience what's going on, mm. you know, in order to make that choice. Mm. Mm. You know, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm oh, I don't want that, so I'm just going to turn real quick and choose that. Mm -hmm. It's taking in everything. Mm -hmm. You're emphasizing the, the not turning away, the turning toward, mm -hmm. the accepting what already is before you take the next step. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Um, um, I think this kind of dovetails on what people have been saying, but and thinking still about Kim's question about like how this differs from the self improvement project. Mm. Um, so what's on my mind is the hymn to Prajnaparamita that we chant in the morning, which to me is it's like this wisdom thing is not me. Like I start my day by pleading to this goddess to come and help me. You know, and um, I too am sober. And one ingredient of that has been like, actually, if I try to make those choices myself, I, I fail. 
I have to like wait for something that's not me, you know, and it comes or it doesn't. Um, but that choice has like a dimension of grace to it that is like everything to me. And when it's, when it isn't colored with that grace or that Project Paramita, um, then it's kind of, it's like, it's caught up in, in like my will and my ideas of what's good and bad and right and wrong and who I should be and the pace at which I should be that person. So, you know, I know Buddhist circles, it's not often popular to talk about prayer and deities and such, but like, I think it's there. And for me, it makes all the difference whether the pause is less like a time to calculate than it is a time to like set up an altar mm -hmm. and see what comes. You know? mm -hmm. John, which human is the Prajna Paramita? I forgot. Um, so we'll we'll to the perfection of oh, okay. we'll start on page five. Thank you. So, um, for me, um, John, as he was speaking, the alchemy comes particularly between me and the teacher. So between me and Flint, or between me and a spiritual friend, it just, you know, that it just, it hits me really powerfully. Um, certainly, you know, sitting in community. Um, so that, that's probably where it hits me the most and, and um, most profoundly, I think. Thank mm. you. Thank you for what you said. Yeah, it just makes me think of setting up an altar and bowing. It's just a time not for me to sit and think, okay, what am I going to say? How is that going to play out? But to bow. But to bow and open my hand. Thank you. All right. It's 10.30. We're right on schedule. It happens on occasion. 